Let's pray with me. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for granting us access to you. So we come boldly in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and ask that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that by your Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to hear your word for this morning. We also pray that we would not be hearers only of your word, but we would also be doers. So empower us by your Spirit to do your will so we would live as your people in this world to reflect your kingdom and conform us day after day to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray this morning. Amen. It is really good to be with you. So we are in Luke chapter 5. We'll read uh, verses 1 to 11. Luke 5, 1 to 11. So I'll, uh, you can follow along as I read. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing, that's Jesus, standing by the sea of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners to the, on the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, have you uh, ever wanted to be part of a team, part of a group or a club that you never got invited into the club? Like join the sports team or something and you never quite had the skills to make it to the team. For me, it, it, it was the basketball team at my school. I, uh, I wanted to join the team, but I didn't quite have the skills to, uh, to make it to tryouts. In fact, I don't have many athletic skills. So my friends tease me about that. They say, your physics is very de deceiving. 
you look athletic, but you don't have many athletic skills. And uh, I was sharing my dilemma with uh, our good sister Rita Hoover here a, a, a little while ago. And she encouraged me by reminding me that I can't put in what God left out. <laughs> Thank you, Rita. That was really, really, really encouraging. So it seems like God left out my uh, athletic skills. So I didn't make the basketball team, but I've made it to Team Jesus. Jesus has called me to join his team. <laughs> well, in our text this morning, Jesus is putting together a team. He is putting a team together to help him accomplish his mission. The last couple of weeks, Kevin led us through the introduction to Jesus' ministry. We saw that Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit went to Galilee to begin his ministry. He taught in their synagogues in his hometown of Nazareth. What he taught there, the people marveled at his teaching. They were so marveled, they were even provoked by his teaching to the point that they wanted to kill him. He went to Capernaum, where the audience there also marveled. They marveled at the authority and power of the word of Jesus. So he preached the good news to the poor. He set free those who were captives and demon-possessed and healed the sick. And the people at Capernaum didn't want him to leave town. Jesus said, I got to go. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For it, I was sent for this purpose. And to do that, to accomplish his mission, Jesus is now putting a team together. He needs help. You say, what? Anti-God? What, what, what kind of help does he need? He doesn't need help. Well, the incarnate Son of God needs help. But beyond that, God has ordained the means for salvation. He uses people, he uses people like us to work with them to accomplish his will. So it's a really, really great, it's really gracious of the Lord to use regular people like us to actually help him, to collaborate with him in his work of redeeming a people for himself. So yes, Jesus calls people to join his team. Jesus calls you to join his team this morning. So let's see, in this particular case, Primarily, the event of Jesus calling his first disciples is really unique in redemptive history. In our text, Luke talks about Jesus calling Peter, James, and John. Jesus is building up this core team. He's selecting the men he will train to be the apostles who will form and share in the foundation of his church. This call is specific to these men. He is calling these men to follow him so he could train them to be apostles. But generally, the shape of that call, the shape of the call to discipleship, the shape of that call is applicable to all Christians. It's applicable to me, it's applicable to you. So we're gonna consider this morning the shape of the call to discipleship and see how it's applicable to us. It's that what I want us to consider is that the call to discipleship is gracious, Definite, missional, and sacrificial. The call to discipleship is gracious, definite, missional, 
and sacrificial. Let's see how the call to discipleship is gracious. Simon and his colleagues on that boat, they do not deserve to join Jesus' team. The mission is to proclaim God's news, God's good news about his kingdom coming to the world. So one would think that the prerequisite to this job would be the ability to, to, to teach and maybe rhetoric. But these men that Jesus handpicked, they're not known to be eloquent speakers or teachers of the law. The first group of men that Jesus calls, they are fishermen. That's a strange choice. Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word, begins his ministry by selecting, handpicking fishermen to come and help him. These, are, these men clearly lack the qualification on the surface of joining Jesus' team. Now, granted, not a whole lot is said about these men's character prior to them joining Jesus' team. However, enough is said about their occupation to give us an idea that if these men were to apply for discipleship into Jesus' team, they would not have been selected. But let, let, let's think about that. If you were given the task to put together the team for Jesus, would you have gone to Galilee to pick up your first team? The first man, would your first draft, draft team, your first draft pick, would it be Simon Peter? More than likely, you'd be in Jerusalem. You'd be around where the, the, the religious who's who uh, of academia, the law is. That's where you would be, but not necessarily hanging around anywhere near Nazareth in that region. But Jesus, in his effort to start putting his team, he went to the pier. He went down on the beach where there are a bunch of fishermen. And in our text, Peter himself actually recognizes that he does not belong where Jesus is. His own self-assessment does not qualify him to join Jesus' team. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, now that's interesting a sinful man. Peter didn't say, depart from me, for I am a fisherman. No, I'm a sinful man. So it seems like Peter's self-evaluation and self-disqualification goes beyond his vocation, beyond his intellectual capability. Something different is happening here. Peter realizes that he is sinful. But what exactly could cause Peter to see his sinfulness so clearly? I think it's the miraculous catch, that miracle. So let's look at the miracle. Peter and his partners, they run a fishing business. Luke doesn't mention how successful the business is, but on the day that Jesus shows up at Peter's job site, it was not a good day at the office. Peter and his partners spent all night fishing. They came to shore with nothing in their hands. I told you I have no athletic skills, so I don't fish. But I hear that 
late evening and early morning are usually best times of the day to fish. But these men fish all night and they got nothing, nothing, and they were professionals. So you can imagine their disappointment as they're standing on that beach, the distress on their face, even some level of anxiety because they're running a business. No fish means no income, and that's not good for business. That's not even good for their family. So some of you can actually understand the feeling because some of you run your own business or your own side hustle. You understand the pressure of not bringing home any income. And some of you work on commission. You certainly understand what it feels like going home with no sales. And I think at some level, all of us, one way or another, can feel the anxiety of no income coming in because we got to eat and we got to pay the bills. So Peter and his partners have no income for that day. They need help. They need help. It so happens that Jesus was in the neighborhood and he brought a crowd with him. And those people would be really good for business for Peter, for sure. But he has no fish. The crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear his word, to hear him preach. So Jesus jumps on the boat, on Peter's boat, and tells him, move the boat a little bit. Because uh, the crowd is crushing him. So he wants a little distance. So he got on the boat next to Peter. Peter is probably washing his net, listening to the master, to so Jesus preaching, and uh, just minding his business. Uh, and maybe it's one of the times, eh, that was a little laughter. But he's doing his thing. Jesus is on the boat. Peter has, he's, not, he's not in a hurry. He complies with all of that when Jesus tells him to move the boat a little bit. He, he has nowhere to go. He has no fish to go deliver. He's not in a hurry. So in a little bit, after Jesus was done preaching, he tells Peter, well, put into the deep and let down your nets. Now, things get a little interesting. Wait a minute here. What's going on? Is the carpenter giving fishing instruction to professional fishermen? Come on. Now. I mean, Peter like, okay. <laughs> Peter's response actually tells you a lot. Uh, Peter, uh, okay. Master. We've talked all night, and we've got nothing. And you're, you're, you're a carpenter. But at your word, at your word, we'll drop down the nets. Because after all, Jesus is the one. The buzz is all across town. He's been healing people. He's been, he's been uh, 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 setting demon-possessed free. Jesus even healed Peter's mother-in-law. So out of reverence for the rabbi, hey, okay. At your word, I'll do it. So there they went, and they did. And when they did, oh boy, fish started jumping out of nowhere and into the nets and into the boats. I mean, Peter is like going crazy. Everybody on the boat, whoa, call James, John, come over here, bring your boat. And those guys came over, dropped their nets. Fish are dropping. Fish all over the place. And people are like, oh, what in the world is going on? We spent all night in this lake. We fished all night. We could not find these guys. Were they playing hide and seek? What's going on? How come the carpenter knows where to find them? 
All of a sudden, they realize, whoa, some, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? So Peter realized that he is dealing with something completely different here. Jesus is not a regular itinerant rabbi walking around with disciples. There were a lot of those running around at the time of Jesus. This one is different. Peter got a revelation at that moment that he is in the presence of divinity. He is God. That's a glimpse of who Jesus is. Because to say that I'm sinful, that's a religious, that the only, the, the whole notion of sinfulness makes no sense out of God. God is the standard and recognizes, ah, there is a problem here, there is a problem here, this guy is God. Because you notice in chapter 4, the demons are the ones who have been proclaiming, you're God, you're the Son of God, oh, the Holy One of, of, of God. The demons were saying that. Now, for the first time, Luke is telling us a human being catch a glimpse of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Something different is happening here. Peter realizes Jesus is God. And there is a problem. <laughs> There's a bit of a problem. Because the Bible tells us no man can see God and live. There's enmity between a holy God and a sinful man. The wage of sin is death. So for a sinful man, death is imminent the closer you get to God. And in Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah finds himself in God's throne room and he's beholding God's majesty, he saw it, whoa, and automatically said, whoa to me. What am I doing here? I'm a dead man. I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when you behold God, you quickly realize I am sinful. He is holy. And there's a problem here. Peter recognizes that communion with God, collaborating with God, requires holiness. That's the very thing he's deficient in. He is sinful. He's not holy. He deserves rejection, not acceptance. He deserves death, not life. Unless God is merciful and gracious to him. And God is by nature gracious and merciful. That's the way he describes himself. That's the way he behaves. That's the way he, he conducts, he acts throughout the Bible with mercy and grace. When Isaiah rightly calls, woe to me. God responds with mercy and grace. When Peter calls for isolation, stay away from me, Jesus responds with mercy and grace. Jesus tells Peter, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus calls Peter to come near. He calls him and his partners, James and John, to join him on his mission. That's a 
gracious, a gracious call. And what a turn of events it is for Peter. For Peter. This bad day at the office for Peter marks a turning point for eternity for him because Jesus showed up in his life. All of us Christians have had an encounter with Jesus that kind of turned things around for good for us and has an impact for eternity. Do you, do you remember what it was? Remember that event for you, for your life? Have you experienced that? And, and, and if you have not yet have that, have had that encounter with Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes right now to behold Christ, the Son of God, to see Him in His majesty and His holiness. And I also pray that, that the Holy Spirit would touch your heart so you could experience His grace. Because God is by nature gracious and merciful. And He calls you because He is gracious and merciful. So the call to discipleship is gracious. It is also a definite call. What do I mean by that? So Jesus, Jesus calling his disciples is not a robocall. It's not a blanket call thrown out there for everyone that whosoever responds to it. No, the call is definite. It is addressed to individuals Throughout redemptive history, God shows us that he calls people, he calls specific persons to do a specific task. For example, God calls Noah to build a ark. God calls Abraham to follow him into a place where he will show him. God calls Moses to save his people out of slavery in Egypt. He calls the judges, he calls the kings, he calls the prophet, and he calls Samuel by name. And he calls Mary and Joseph to be the parents of the incarnate son. It's an amazing, amazing thing that the God of the universe would know us by name and would call us by name. Jesus had many disciples, but among the disciples, he handpicked 12 of them. 12 disciples to carry out the specific mission of continuing his work. All four of the gospel writers, actually, they named the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles by name. So it's important for them. Luke, for Luke, it is particularly important because Luke is writing this gospel and also the Acts because his purpose is that so that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And the fact that Jesus calls his disciples, that call is a definite call, it's also important to us, the church, because we are the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the gospel is handed down to us through the eyewitness statements of the apostles. So it's important that this call is definite. He calls Peter, he calls these 12 guys, they are the apostles because Jesus is shaping, is preparing for his church. So these men, Peter included, they're not crooks. They're not self-appointed apostles. The Lord Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, handpicked these men so they could continue the work of proclaiming God's kingdom. And when Peter introduces himself in the letters as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's carrying on the authority of Jesus, the one who called them, picked them, and sent him. So 
it's important for us, the church, to pay attention to these things because God has appointed these men to be the apostles. So the call to discipleship is definite to all of us Christians because the pattern is the same. God calls every single one of us to discipleship. When he calls you, he calls me, John, by name, come. He calls Robin, he calls Kevin, he calls you by name. It's definite. The call to discipleship is also missional. Jesus says to Peter, from now on, you will be catching men. Both Matthew and Mark, in their uh, telling of this story, they use the imperative, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus has a mission for his disciples. They will do what he does. He will take who Peter is, transform him for the purpose of his kingdom. Peter used to catch fish. Now Peter, he will train Peter so Peter will be able to catch men. They will continue the work that Jesus started. Jesus is very driven by the mission God gave him, the mission which is to proclaim God's, news, God's good news of the kingdom that is here coming on earth. This good news cannot be contained. The people, when the people of Capernaum wanted to keep Jesus in the city, Jesus said, no, 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 I can't stay here. I need to go to the other town to go proclaim this good news. The kingdom of God must expand beyond the city limits of Capernaum. It must go to the extent, to the end of the earth. Jesus wants to train people to help him do that. Go spread. Go spread the, God, the good news about God's kingdom. So he's, he's, he's selecting men. He's training men so he could send them out. In fact, in chapter 10, Luke says that Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples, two by two, to every town that before he was headed to those towns. And their mission, which was to, the mission of those guys as they go to the town, was to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that, in that mission trip that Luke reports in chapter 10, that mission trip was such a great success. Luke reports more. He says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus himself was full of joy of this report from these 72 guys. And Luke keeps saying, continue to say in, in chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus now bursts into a thanksgiving prayer because of these men returned from the, the, their mission trip. Jesus says, Luke reports here, he says, in that day, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So the kingdom of God is also missional. The kingdom must be filled with people, kingdom people. And God has ordained that it is through the proclamation of his word and by, the, the, by his power that he would gather his people, the people of the kingdom. And it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that God would choose reg, ordinary people like us with just ordinary means to execute this mission of gathering 
his, his people in bringing him to his kingdom. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his disciples to do the very thing he, he has commanded them to do. And Peter, on Pentecost Day, Peter proclaimed the word of God before a multitude and about 3,000, 3,000 people responded to Peter's message. That was a miraculous catch of men. Peter is indeed now catching men. The call is missional, and God is empowering it by his spirit. It is quite something that a movement that started in the backwards town of Nazareth over 2,000 years ago by this group of fishermen now is the world's largest religion. So Jesus knew what he was doing when he was picking these fishermen by the sea. The call to discipleship is also sacrificial. Peter and his partners, James and John, responded positively to Jesus' call to join his team. They were so amazed by this catch and also amazed by Jesus' invitation. Peter particularly, depart from me, he said. Stay away from me. But just say, no, don't be afraid. Come. Come join my team. Join your team? Of course. When they put the boat, when they got the boat back to the land, they left everything and followed him. Even the catch. They left everything and followed him. Matthew and Mark, in their account, also use the same language. They left everything. And followed him. So it's important then to the gospel writers to note that the call to discipleship is sacrificial. In order for us disciples to follow Christ, it requires a letting go of everything and to follow Christ. For Peter, James, and John, it was immediately a letting go of any fear or concern about their financial well-being and go for a career change. It was immediate for them. And I don't know what it might be for somebody else, but these men, they were fishermen. They're, they're professional fishermen. That's what they did for a living. That's a business. And they are such a huge catch, the catch of their lives. They left it and walked away. They were not part of the celebration for the catch. They were, they were prob they probably didn't, well, they were not even probably involved in the selling of the fish. Probably their partners were handling all this. They left everything behind and followed Jesus. But why? Why did they do that? Why, why, why would they leave behind all their livelihood to follow Jesus? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. They got a glimpse of Jesus' divinity. There's no turning back. They saw Jesus for who he is. There's no turning back. 
Where Jesus is, that's where they want to be. They left everything because they realized that what Jesus gives is much, much more precious than any great catch, even a miraculous one. The fish will spoil. The money will finish. The relationships will end. The partnerships will break. But God's word lasts forever. And Jesus has God's word. Years later, Peter quotes Isaiah in one of his letters, and he writes, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The world standards tells us to pursue upward mobility, seek financial stability, achieve career growth, hunt for personal satisfaction. But God's standards tell us that those things are good, but they're not ultimate. They are limited. They're not truly satisfying. They are unable to address our most serious desire, our most serious problem, which is sin against God. They certainly cannot atone for our sins, but Jesus can. Imagine for a moment that you just landed a multi-million dollar contract or your dream job, and then you sense God calling you to live all that beyond to go live as a missionary in a foreign country or live as a missionary in one of the rough places here in the United States. Would you leave everything behind and go? You, you might be in a relationship that does not honor the Lord right now. It might be because it's, it's an adulterous, relation, adulterous relationship, uh, a sexual immoral relationship, whatever that case may, may be. But it's a relationship that you, that, that you know it doesn't honor the Lord. God calls you to join his team. Now, will you leave that relationship behind and follow Christ? Now, during my uh, rebellious years, I call them my rebellious years because I, was, uh, I grew up uh, in a Christian home, and, uh, but there was a time when I, I left the church, wanted to live for, my, for myself, pursue personal satisfaction and uh, all, the, all that jazz. And I decided to live with my girlfriend, but I was going to church. One Sunday during worship, I, I sensed the Holy Spirit touch my heart, and I felt the need to come back home to my heavenly Father. So I went to the altar and, uh, for prayer as a sign of rededication of my life uh, to the Lord. And when I got home, I told my girlfriend what I just did. And without skipping a beat, she said, what about us? I was like, uh, but that was the right question for her to ask. The call to discipleship is sacrificial. It demands that no one and nothing are more precious to us than Jesus. It requires the measure of faith that leads us to believe that with Jesus, all of our needs are met. And Jesus puts it very bluntly in Luke chapter 14. And here's what he says. 
He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He goes further. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, I was not willing to do that. I, uh, I didn't leave that relationship. In fact, I've never had this before. Actually, I had visions <laughs> twice, not at the same time, twice, of a huge exit sign. And I knew exactly what that exit sign meant. And I said, no. About a year later, the Lord ended that relationship because he wanted me so bad. He was so adamantly pursuing me. He caused the relationship to end. It was painful, I tell you. But the Lord used that pain to help me see how deep his love is for me. And I'm so thankful. And that's when I finally have a better understanding of what the gospel is. Now, the sacrifice that the call of discipleship requires it's not a one-time thing. <laughs> the life of the disciple is sacrificial. We die daily to our own desires and flesh for the glory of our Lord. That's the life. That's the call. But it is not in vain. There's a reward set aside for us, those of us who persevere to the end. Later in Luke's account, Jesus was addressing, was making a comment about how difficult it is for rich people to follow him. And Peter reminds Jesus of his sacrifice. He says, we've left our homes to follow you. And Jesus kindly encouraged Peter. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Our sacrifices are not in vain. But the life we are called to live as disciples of Christ is sacrificial. So I leave you with this word from the Apostle Paul. It says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless you.